Good morning, everyone. Boker Welcome to a Mosaic today. This is teaching number 68, and we will be resuming our journey through the Gospels uh, as we will pick it up in Luke chapter 7. Uh, before we uh, have a little bit of prayer, just want to kind of set the scene a little bit of uh, this, this is kind of a great example in two different ways of where the context is really going to help us not only understand the text better, but also uh, be in a better position to feel the impact uh, that the author Luke was trying to make. Uh, we are going to be tempted just to kind of be reading this and, and, and just see Jesus kind of entering into a town and there happens to be a funeral on that day. But what Jesus does do and what he does not do when he encounters that funeral actually is Luke's way of making a very, very powerful statement. And it would have been a statement that would have been made to that crowd that Jesus encountered, which further goes behind when we see in the Gospels many times uh, that statement that uh, people saw Jesus differently, that he was one who had a authority. Uh, this is going to be one of those instances where they sensed that authority. Uh, but if we're not careful, we could miss that uh, if we don't know the context. So that's where we're going to be headed in Luke 7. Uh, but let's bow our heads for a time of prayer. We pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we would so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, so that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we would embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. In Mosaic, we value our Bibles, love our Bibles, always encourage you to bring your Bible with you to Mosaic as it is a, a Bible study, a time in God's Word. So if you need a Bible, grab one in the pew or chair around you, and let's hold our Bibles up and repeat after me. This is my Bible. Jesus is who it says he is. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. My mind is alert. By God's grace, my heart is receptive. The Bible is the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living Word of God. My encounter with the Bible today will transform and grow my faith. We say together, in Jesus' name, amen. As I said earlier, let's open up to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we'll eventually be picking it up in uh, verse 12 as we look here uh, essentially at two processions. Uh, and again, that's only if you know the first century context that you would know there's actually two processions going on here, not just what seems to be one. The, the one on the surface just is going to seem like it's this funeral procession, but in reality, uh, there is a second one going on. 
So in the last teaching, in teaching 67, uh, we began looking at Luke chapter 7, verse 11, where Jesus uh, has come from preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he's gone back to Capernaum, uh, and then he kind of heads back out because part of his mission is to go into all the towns, all the villages, all the synagogues of the Galilee and proclaim the gospel. And he, we left off last uh, teaching with Jesus coming to the town of Nain, N-A-I-N. And we also highlighted the connection of Nain to the Old Testament prophet Elisha, uh, which also brought in the context of the prophet Elijah, uh, the geography of that, and how the gospel writers, um, especially Mark, but really all four of them, uh, try to make this connection, uh, this pattern in Jesus' ministry, uh, specifically John and Jesus, with Elijah and Elisha. Uh, and so now we're going to resume the account of Jesus entering into uh, the city of Nain. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 7, verse 12. Uh, let's read this together. When Jesus drew near to the gate of the town... People were bringing out a dead person, the only son of his mother, who was a widow. Many of the people of the town were with her. So that town is Nain, and as Jesus and his disciples, his entourage, are entering into uh, that town, they encounter what is a, a funeral procession. They are taking uh, the body uh, to its burial place. And so uh, Jesus and his disciples see this procession of mourners leaving the village, following after what's called a, a bier. That is where they're kind of carrying the body. Jewish burial customs dictate uh, that the burial of an individual happen on the day of death or within 24 hours of death whenever possible. Uh, the young man that was uh, on the bier had probably died, again, less than 24 hours earlier. And so in keeping with the Galilean funeral customs, the women led the burial procession. There would have been the men of the community following and, and carrying the body, there also would have been, uh, assuming this is following the culture of the day, uh, professional mourners. People in those days actually paid people to come to funeral processions and funerals uh, to sing, uh, to, to do things of memory. Uh, there would have been musicians trailing behind. First century Jews also buried their dead outside the city. So that's why the text has them as Jesus is going into the town. They're coming out of the town because the dead are buried on the outside of the city. The rabbis in Jewish custom then as well as now considered escorting the dead to be a mitzvah. That is a very powerful connection or commandment that was incumbent upon everyone. So I want to read to you something from uh, a work called Berachot uh, that kind of describes this custom of Jesus' day. Rahava said in the name of Yehuda, whoever sees a corpse being carried to burial and does not accompany is the one of whom it's written in Proverbs 14. 
He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But what if he does accompany the dead? Then what is his reward? Rav Asi said, to him applies the passage of Proverbs 19. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. So all of this is to say that according to the law, the custom, convention, and courtesy of the land, Jesus coming into the town with his procession of disciples and followers, they should have stepped aside for the funeral procession. And they should have allowed it to pass and then joined in following it all the way to the cemetery. That is what they should have done. That's what the law of the day would have said to do. That's what the custom would have been. That's what would have been courteous. That's what would have been expected. The duty of escorting the dead remained incumbent upon them even though they were strangers and had no connection to the deceased individual. Uh, In fact, that's still the practice today, and this happened to me a few years ago when I was visiting Jerusalem on my own to do some studying, Uh, and I went to visit the the grave of my rabbi's teacher, my teacher's teacher, and when I arrived and I got out of my car, there was a procession of people going to a funeral in that cemetery, and I was expected to join in. Uh, I participated in the prayers and the song, and I was part of the funeral until it ended, even though only reason I was part of it is because I just happened to get out of my car at the time they were coming through. Uh, but that's what's expected of you. The women who led the procession, no doubt, were still feeling acute grief, uh, probably shock. Again, you're less than 24 hours after the death. Jesus could have easily picked out on this, and he easily could have picked out the mourning mother. As Luke 7 verse 12 says, she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Not only had she lost her beloved son, but without a husband or other children, she had also lost a sense of hope of provision and standing in the community. And so in verse 13 of Luke 7, It says, Jesus felt compassion for her. And he performed the ensuing miracle for her sake, not for the dead man. Her story is similar to the widow of Zarephath, of whom Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 4, verse 26. In that story, the prophet Elijah resurrected a widow's son from the dead. So that's one of the patterns you're going to see in the Gospels. Things that the great prophet Elijah and the great prophet Elisha did, you're going to find Jesus doing. And in this case, Jesus is not only doing something these two prophets did, but he's doing it in the same geographic location. So the geography and the circumstances of the miracles of Elijah and Elisha converging in the ministry of Jesus, the resurrection of this widow's son, would not have been lost on the crowd. So let's see from the culture the bit of actually what should be shocking to us. So let's keep reading in the text. Luke chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, as we read about this collision course. Let's read these words together. When Jesus saw her, he was moved with compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. 
He approached and touched the bed, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. So from a cultural, contextual point of view, why these verses should be shocking to us is the fact that Jesus and his disciples and his entourage do not step aside. They do not step aside for the procession to pass by and then follow along to the cemetery. That's no small point because that's actually making a greater point of who Jesus' identity really is. So Jesus approaches the procession head on. And again, that would have been considered, at least at the beginning of this encounter, rude. Rude at best, breaking the law at worst. Failing to yield the right of way to a funeral procession, it was a severe breach of etiquette, a major cultural faux pas. With his disciples and followers trailing in procession behind him, he says to the widow, do not weep. Then he passed her by and touched the bier, the bed, the, the, the place where the body was laying, bringing the funeral procession to a sudden halt. So rather than stepping aside and joining the rear, he confronts it head on and he puts it to a halt. Jesus' seeming impudence, though, was springing from his sense of identity and who he truly is. So here's the other shoe. The Talmud, the, the oral tradition, the interpretation and application of the biblical law for the Jewish people, in its concern to legislate every possible contingency, discusses what to do when one procession meets another procession. It's kind of like when four cars arrive at a four-way stop. Who goes, right? Who goes first? And you say, well, the one on your right. Well, if you follow that logic, everyone has someone on their right. So you don't really get anywhere, right? So we have rules and, and regulations and etiquette for how that happens. So the Talmud discusses what to do when one procession meets another procession. The priority almost always goes to the funeral procession. Everyone is supposed to make way for the funeral procession. Except, except in two cases. Only the procession of a bride on her wedding day and only the procession of a king of Israel takes priority over the funeral procession. In those two cases, the funeral procession must stop and yield the right of way. So it's written like this in the Jewish law. This is from Ketuvot. Our rabbis taught one should require a funeral procession to stop to make way for a bridal procession. And both a funeral procession and a bridal procession should stop to make way for the king of Israel. So all processions stop when the king of Israel enters into a town. And so what you have from the literary perspective in Luke chapter 7 is the king of Israel bringing the funeral procession to a halt. Only the king of Israel could do this. 
And that is why people would say of Jesus, he is someone who has authority. He is someone who speaks and acts and teaches and does things with authority. Dare we say he acts like he's the king of Israel? Because he is the king of Israel. And so here in Luke 7, you really have the two processions. The funeral procession, which almost everything is supposed to yield to. And then you have the procession of the king of Israel, which the custom of the day would say the funeral procession comes to a halt for the king of Israel. And that's exactly what you have going on in the text. But let's keep reading this encounter because as it goes on, it's going to eventually find its way into the ears of John the Baptist. And we're going to learn again something about the culture of the day and how the people's familiarity with the scriptures enabled them to communicate on a very kind of deep level and almost a code level. So let's keep reading here. Luke chapter 7. Verses 15 and 16, as we look at this great prophet, let's read these words together. The dead person awoke and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Trembling gripped all of them, and they praised God. They said, a great prophet has arisen in our midst, and God has taken note of his people. The dead man sat up and began to talk. The stories of Elijah and Elisha influencing Luke as he crafts his narrative. In fact, one of the fascinating things you see in the Gospels is what I call the effortless quoting of Scripture. The Gospels rarely will tell you that they're quoting the Old Testament. Every once in a while they'll say, as it was written in the prophets, or as Isaiah once said. Every once in a while you get that. But you certainly never get chapter and verse, because chapter and verse didn't exist then. But most of the time, it's simply embedded in the text, because it's assuming the audience has intimate familiarity with the Word of God. And so, believe it or not, these two verses, Luke 7, 15, and 16, are quoting the Scriptures and evoking a story from the Old Testament. The Greek phrase, and he gave him back to his mother, is an exact quotation in the Greek Septuagint of 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 23, where it reads this. And he brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and he gave him back to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. The people of Nain also were seeing parallels, not only to this story in Elijah, where Elijah brought back a widow's son and then said to the mother, I give him back to you, but also in Elisha who was their favorite local hero because Elisha had raised a son in their own town. A second son of the village of Moray now awoke from death and returned to his widowed mother. And that's why the people declare in Luke 7, verse 16, a great prophet has arisen among us because they're seeing the prophetic connection. 
Of course, skeptics may have objected that maybe the boy was only in a swoon, maybe he did not die, but it did not dissuade the eyewitnesses. They told everyone what had happened, and anyone doubted they could easily make their trip to this town of Nain themselves and meet the boy and his mother. And so word of this resurrection spread as far as Judea, the Gospels tell us. As you could imagine, uh, that caught quite a stir. And so people began to talk and word of it got around and it eventually spread as far as a location known as Perea on the east side of the Dead Sea, which is where John the Baptist was being held under arrest in the dungeons of Herod Antipas. So it's been a while since we've encountered John the Baptist in our Mosaic teachings. We may have forgotten about him, but the last time we kind of left off with John the Baptist, he had been arrested by Herod Antipas, and he was uh, being kept in a fortress of Herod known as Macarius, uh, which is on the east side of the Dead Sea in the region of Perea. But eventually, word of Jesus resurrecting the dead got to John the Baptist. Uh, so let's engage that story with John the Baptist in Macarius. So Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Let's read it together. The disciples of John told him all these things. So now we know how John hears about it. Apparently in Nain, because many of Jesus' disciples they were originally disciples of John. Well, many of them uh, still kept a connection to John. Some may have not fully been following Jesus, may have still considered themselves followers of John as their main teacher. And so uh, in, in the Roman Empire, your arrest is kind of like today. You, you could receive visitors. You could talk to individuals. You could send out letters. You could send out messages. And so some of John's disciples who knew what happened in Nain go and tell John, as it says, all these things. So probably not just the resurrection at Nain of this widow, but probably all the other things Jesus has been up to and all of the other things Jesus has been saying. But Herod Antipas had arrested John the Baptist. Why? We may recall Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, and he was tetrarch. He was leader. He was governor. He was kind of the, uh, the mayor, if you will, of aspects of the Galilean region. Though Herod Antipas, as the Gospels tell us, enjoyed listening to John, there was something in John's message that resonated with Herod Antipas. Josephus, the historian, tells us that Herod perceived John's popularity with the crowds as a threat. And one of the things we know about not only Herod the Great, but his son Herod Antipas and all of those in Herod the Great's family is they're very paranoid and they don't like anyone getting any kind of fame and they don't like anyone taking any of their glory away. And so when Herod Antipas married his sister-in-law, John publicly condemns the marriage as a violation of the Torah, of the law of God. And John found himself, as a result of doing that, 
imprisoned far from the living waters of the Jordan where he had been carrying on his ministry. Herod put him in chains in the dungeons of Macarius, a fortress overlooking the lifeless and poisoned waters of the Dead Sea. As John prophesied to himself alone in his prison cell, he may have recalled his own words that he used to preach at the River Jordan. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in quiet moments of reflection, he might have begun to think about that message. If the kingdom of God, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, if it's right here, if the Messiah has come, if the one who followed after me, the one of whose sandals I'm unfit to tie, if he has come and the kingdom of heaven is within my grasp, then why am I here in arrest? Why am I under house arrest? When John's disciples came to him, he eagerly kind of plied them for news about Jesus. What's happening out there? What's going on out there? How's the ministry going? Is the Messiah finally raising his army? Has he begun his judgment? Well, his disciples probably said, not exactly, John, not exactly. In fact, the last time we saw him, John, he was eating at a big party of tax collectors in Capernaum. And John wondered, what kind of kingdom was this? What kind of Messiah is this? And so, Matthew chapter 11, verse 3, it says this, John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? I think that question there in Matthew 11, verse 3, uh, it's kind of stinging because I think it has two aspects to it. One, I think John is wanting his disciples to ask Jesus this question for their benefit. He wants his disciples to understand who Jesus is. And he wants his disciples to be followers of Jesus and to be followers of the Messiah. And so he is sending them to directly confront him with this question so that Jesus can answer that question for them. Because that's the kind of thing a Jewish teacher would do. But I also think there is an aspect within John being under arrest, being imprisoned, being this forerunner, this one of a prophetic role, this one who is convinced the kingdom of heaven is here, this one who's convinced the one who came after him was indeed the expected one, but now is maybe not doing the expected things. And so maybe John is wanting some kind of reassurance that, okay, I've prepared the way for you. I've prepared the people for you. You were here. It's not quite what I envisioned. Can you at least offer me some reassurance? And this is where it's going to be fascinating. And this is where it's so important when you know that the Gospels are quoting the Old Testament that you actually go and look at those quotations. You don't just look in your side margin or note, oh, he's quoting Isaiah. No, go to Isaiah and read it. Because believe it or not, John and Jesus are about to have a conversation without ever speaking to one another and without ever actually saying, 
tell John I said X, Y, and Z. It's really going to be, quote this scripture to John. But pay careful attention to how Jesus quotes the scripture. So, John's question. Luke chapter 7, verse 19. Let's continue in the text. Let's read this together. John called for two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus, saying to him, Are you the one who comes, or should we wait for another? Again, rabbis of the day, even nowadays, rabbis prefer their students to be in pairs because they're kavrusa, they're sharpening iron. And so just as Jesus would send out disciples two by two, so John sends out a pair of his disciples. Uh, Are you the one who comes, or should we wait for another? Or as Matthew's version said, should we expect another? And I like that expect because it's kind of saying, it's not that I doubt, but it's not what I'm expecting. So was John simply in a moment of doubt about the identity of Jesus? Is he questioning the validity of Jesus' ministry? As I said, probably not, not on a very serious level, but more on a reassure me level. Reassure me that this is the plan. And again, as a very good kind of rabbinic teacher, I think John sends his disciples to ask the question for their benefit. Because after all, John had seen the heavens open. He had seen the Spirit descend on Jesus. He may have even heard the heavenly voice saying in Matthew 3, verse 17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so if John did not doubt Jesus' identity, what is the real meaning behind his question? The answer may be found in the writings of a small community right across the Dead Sea from where John was currently staying. The Qumran community, the community of the Essenes, and what they left behind in their writings in the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea Scrolls indicate the possibility that there would be two messiahs, a priestly messiah, who's sometimes called the teacher of righteousness, and a Davidic kingly messiah. Perhaps the Qumran community influenced John's messianic expectation. Because think about this. A hundred years before the ministry of Jesus, a hundred years before Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary, there is this community near the Dead Sea who views Jerusalem and the religious leadership as corrupt. So corrupt that they withdraw from Jerusalem and they move to the Dead Sea. They move south and they form their own community and they write their own biblical commentaries and they say there's going to be two messiahs, a priestly messiah and a Davidic messiah. Let's go all the way back to Mosaic early teaching. Who is John the Baptist's father? Anybody remember? Zechariah. What is Zechariah's job? He's a priest, right? That means John is of priestly origin. And then we go back to those early Mosaic teachings. What is Jesus' genealogy? He comes from... David, right? The kingly. 
And so a hundred years before Jesus is born, there's a community in the Dead Sea where now John is kind of hanging out, and it's actually where John did his baptizing, right there with the Jordan before it empties into the Dead Sea. That's where John did his ministry. John's familiar with the idea that there will be a predecessor to the Messiah, and he will be of priestly descent. Rabbinic literature also suggests that these two messiahs can be seen as a suffering servant, followed by a victorious king. The suffering messiah for Israel's sin dies and fulfills the prophecy that point to Messiah's suffering. This is Messiah, son of Joseph, which, because of his mission of affliction, evokes the weeping character of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Then this first Messiah prepares the way for the coming second Messiah. Now, all of this may seem somewhat foreign to us, but we are in the season of Advent, and I promise you it's not foreign to us. We just explain it slightly different. In the season of Advent, Advent is a word that means coming. We celebrate not only the first Advent of Jesus, our Messiah, we also look forward to his second advent, his second coming. And so we too believe in two messiahs, if you will, same individual, but we understand them in two different advents. And we understand that the first advent had a different role than the second advent. Same kind of theology was at play. And it's with these ideas and concepts that John sends his disciples to inquire of Jesus are you the expected one? Are you the one we're expecting? Or do we need to look for someone else? Are you the only coming Messiah? Or should we expect another? And here we're going to get a very cryptic answer from Jesus. And I'm going to give you hints along the way, but I want to see if you catch it. I want to see if you catch what Jesus does in his answer. Luke chapter 7, verses 22 and 23 is Jesus' response. Let's read it together. Jesus answered and said to them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, lepers are becoming pure, the deaf are hearing, the dead are rising, and the poor are receiving good news. Oh, the gladness of the man who does not stumble over me. So that last line, you kind of get a little reassurance to John. Don't get caught up in the details, man. Everything is going according to plan. Don't stumble, right? You kind of got that. But there's something else Jesus includes here. And you see, um, as we're going to kind of unpack, he really only is quoting the Scripture. These words are not original to Jesus. So Jesus replies to John's cryptic question, with a cryptic answer, right? So they're kind of talking at a different level with one another. Before the invention of the printing press, copies of the scriptures were very rare, very valuable. In the days of Jesus, only a wealthy family could possess even a portion of a scroll of a book of a Bible. And most often, communities would have to pool all of their resources to get one full copy of the Bible for their entire community. They kept the community scroll in the local synagogue. 
And so they were neither convenient nor very accessible, as you can imagine. So how did the people keep the Bible with them? Right up here, right? It was easier to keep the Bible in your head by memorizing Scripture. They memorized Scripture. The memorization of passages of Scripture, even entire books, resulted in a highly developed form of communication for religious Jews. That's a very important point. So I'm going to repeat it. The fact that the Scriptures were memorized and were known intimately resulted in a highly developed mode of communication. In their dialogues about Scripture, when they referenced a particular passage or prophecy by citing only a few key words, the argumentation and discussions preserved in rabbinic literature attest that more than one conversation was happening at the same time. So when Jesus told his disciples to report to John that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, so forth and so on, also found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 5, his words really left no room for doubt. That is, what John's disciples would have heard was this. Jesus is the Messiah predicted by the prophets. He would bring the final redemption. He was the Messiah that John was anticipating. And... Jesus actually is alluding to two different portions in the book of Isaiah in that quotation. First, he's referencing Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 7. I'll read that for us. Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those of anxious heart, take courage and fear not, because your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongues of the mute will shout for joy, waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The scorched land will become a pool, and thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals is its resting place, and grass become reeds and rushes. But there is a second passage from Isaiah that Jesus references. It's the same passage that Jesus read earlier when his official public ministry began in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. And that is this text. And I kind of let the cat out of the bag, but I still want to see if you catch it. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. This is Isaiah speaking of there will be this servant, the son who will come as a redeemer. This is the one that the spirit of the Lord will be upon. This is the one that the Lord will anoint to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort those who mourn. There is a secret message in what Jesus sends back to John. But it's kind of coded because it really looks like he's just quoting Scripture. It really looks like he's just quoting kind of a combo platter of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, which both kind of speak of this 
blind eyes being open, deaf being here, uh, able to hear, the, the lame being able to walk, and so forth. It just sounds like he's quoting Scripture. And for those disciples, it would be like, okay, yeah, Jesus is doing that. So he's saying, yes, Jesus, he is the Messiah. But let's go to... Get that, get that verse, those verses in your mind now. And let's go back to Jesus. What do you see? What's the difference? Jesus doesn't mention something. He conveniently skips an important kind of between the commas and the list of things that the Messiah of Isaiah that's prophesied about will be doing. What does he leave out? Prisoners will be released. So what's his real message to John? His real message to John is to reassure him, yes, indeed, I am the Messiah. Yes, indeed, I am the expected one. Yes, indeed, things are going exactly according to plan. Do not stumble over this. I promise you, John, I give you my word. Everything is tracking like it should be. And yes, John, I understand you're wondering if all of that's the case. Then why are you a captive? So Jesus says, don't stumble, my dear teacher, my dear brother, my dear partner in the ministry. Because for you, I am sorry to tell you, there will be no liberty for you. There will be no freedom for you. His allusions to Isaiah coupled with his word of caution in Matthew eleven six, 6 are saying, I am the one, but my dear friend, you are not going to make it out alive. Do not let your disappointment either with how the ministry is being carried out or with the disappointment that this is where you are going to die. Do not let it break your faith, my dear friend. We will close there for this morning. We'll pick it up next week, uh, continuing to go through the Gospels.